0: In October 2009, two men were shot in front of a Los Angeles synagogue. What was initially thought to be a terrorist attack or a potential hate crime would, upon further investigation, turn out to be an organized hit by Israeli mafia. Investigations would uncover a gang of Israelis operating extortion rings, engaging in the sale of drugs, and in acts of terrorism. The task force in charge of the investigation would be shut down by the U.S. State Department, leading one of the investigators to state that this Israeli mob was being coordinated by a quote-unquote spider who sat in tel aviv or Holon and spun his webs in two thousand sixteen ryan dawson published a short documentary entitled trump's zionist ball and chain on today's truth perspective we will be discussing the evidence behind the allegations that trump is connected to these israeli zionist mobsters today is july fourteenth and on the truth perspective joining me in the studio are harrison cayley hello and elon martin hi everyone so, we sat down when we watched uh, Trump's Zionist Fallen and Chain, and we have done a little bit of research in the interim to look into the different allegations that Trump and his uh, various family members are connected to the Israeli mob. Um, do you guys have any thoughts about that? Where to start off on the show today?
1: Well, I think uh, one of the cool things about Dawson's little documentary, uh, which we've got a link to in the show notes is that he basically shows just how connected and intermingled are several facets of the American kind of political establishment. He focuses primarily on the New York and New Jersey political scene with Goldman Sachs, the Port Authority, APAC, and organized crime. And it's very interesting just how all these groups are connected. And if, we, if you take any two of those groups mentioned, you'll find like a revolving door type thing going on. So, for example, with the New Jersey politicians, it's like, well, and, and in federal politics, it's like a revolving door with Goldman Sachs. So you've got people that are on the board of Goldman Sachs, and then they get into politics, and then they get into, or vice versa, they get into Goldman Sachs from politics. And then it's the same thing with the Port Authority. We'll get into a bit about what the Port Authority is and how it fits into everything going on. Well, first of all, maybe we can just get into that right now, um, as our first little foray into this tangled web of corruption that that is uh, New Jersey and and New York. Um, so, what is the Port Authority? I didn't even know like what the Port Authority is or what it does. And I still didn't really have a, a great idea of what it was after watching uh, Dawson's little documentary because he just kind of gets into it without giving a lot of the background information. But correct me if I'm wrong. The Port Authority is responsible basically for um, transportation and infrastructure in basically New York and New Jersey. And so they, of course, they have big interactions with real estate developers um, because they're basically the people that give the contracts and that run the whole show over there so what happens is there's a board for the port authority and the new jersey and new york governors appoint the board members and appoint the chairman for the port authority now to understand how this works we need to know a little bit about new jersey politics because apparently again you know not being an american being canadian i didn't know a whole lot about any of this, but apparently it was pretty much like common knowledge that New Jersey is just a really corrupt state and that it's just, um, well, it has been common knowledge to the point where when McGreevy became governor in like 2002, there were quotes in the papers about how you didn't just pay the politicians in New Jersey for access. Now with McGreevy in charge, it was like, it was just direct, you paid them for results it's pay to play. So if you're a real estate developer or someone with an interest in getting something from the government, you make a large campaign donation to the politician and they do you a favor. They give you a contract or they put you on on the board of, for example, the Port Authority. And it is this pay to play relationship. And that was um, even before McGreevy, it was like this. Probably, I think, you know, based on a couple of references in Dawson's documentary, it goes back probably 100 years. It's probably always been like that. So what happens is McGreevy, for instance, would appoint someone to, the, to be the chairman or to be a board member on the Port Authority, basically in return for <laughs> bribes for cash, and then would the Port Authority would then have the, the authority to dole out certain contracts and certain privileges for whoever wants to do Real estate or infrastructure in the region—that is just a, a recipe for corruption, and it is used for that purpose. It seems like it seems like that's the port authority's main job is to just be a corrupt entity and you know do political favors like that. I talked about the revolving door with Goldman Sachs and the politicians. There's also a revolving door with the port authority. You'd think that. The port authority, the people on the on the board, would be like experts in, for for instance, transportation, but they tend not to go in that direction. For example, I think it was Chris Christie, his like six appointments that he made for the port authority. They were all um, like investment bankers, and. So you see a lot of investment bankers and um, you know, finance guys that get into the Port Authority because that's what it all is. It's all its all money. And there happen to be several people at any given time on the Port Authority Board who are like ex-members of APAC or who have advisors or aides who were ex-members of APAC and who have served on various of the the kind of... Jewish charitable organizations, or basically all part of what Grant Smith calls uh, "Big Israel," which is the the Israel lobby writ large, like not just APAC but the entire collection of organizations like this, because there are several, and they're all they're all kind of part of a, a, a bigger group. One of the things that uh, Grant Smith points out about that is that um, some people don't know this, but it should be common knowledge, like the Israel lobby doesn't have to register as a foreign agent and this happened back in the RFK when RFK was attorney general I believe well it goes back that far and right after RFK was killed where there was a a push for the Israel lobby to be um, labeled as a foreign agent and to have to um, to have the level of transparency that any other like foreign lobby has in the United States but they managed through various um, techniques to avoid that. So for the past 60, 50, 60 years, um, they have avoided, for instance, any kind of public transparency about what their actions are in America, what they use their money for, etc. And so they've pretty much got a free reign. It, it is a, a foreign government that has free reign in their lobbying capabilities within the U.S. And they happen to have their guys in the Port Authority, and also, uh, well, and more than that, of course, like uh, Welton Mearsheimer pointed out years ago, there was one quote in the documentary, I think it was, which guy was it, was it Wildstein or um, another guy who was basically, he got in a little bit of trouble because he was caught on tape saying that, oh, you know, I got, I managed to get like three billion mm-hmm. in this, ten billion in that, all this kind of military and foreign aid, all because these guys want the Jewish vote. So he managed to get just billions and dollars of aid from US politicians because he was working for for APAC. He was bragging to this someone else about the billions of dollars that he managed to get and he, then he said that he had that the lobby had people in the in like every level of the Clinton campaign. He's like, "Oh, we've got our guys there." and uh, we're going to get them into top leadership positions in the campaign. And this was during Hillary Clinton's, this wasn't the, the election uh, campaign, this was beforehand, like when, hin- when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. So he was basically um, bragging about the influence that he had within the Clinton campaign and thus administration when she was Secretary of State. Um, the implication of that being that they had pull on American foreign policy. Of course, that's been one of the biggest criticisms of the Israel lobby is their influence on U.S. foreign policy. And if you've ever wondered, you know, why a lot of foreign policy decisions don't really seem to make sense if you think about them in terms of American interests, it's like, well, how does that benefit American national interests? Well, it's because they don't, but they just so happen to benefit Israeli national interests, which some Americans, well, a lot of Americans say would be the same thing as American interests, of, and of course, I think probably the majority would say no, um, because Israel isn't the United States. But some people think so. So that just a you know a, a little introduction. But it, was there anything in there that you want to kind of go off on and expand?
0: Well, you know, I was thinking about the uh, what you were talking about, the Port Authority and its job in you know infrastructure and transportation of goods. And in the documentary, Ryan Dawson talks about how uh, the mafia uh, for the mafia, the first thing that you're going to want to do when you're setting up an illegal operation is get infrastructure,
1: not just mafia, the intelligence agencies.
0: Right. Right. And uh, th- so when you're looking at uh, these uh, at the Port Authority, and you see these uh, these Zionist connections, um, these connections to Israel, and you're you know you're reading about all the corruption that takes place i decided to look a little bit into uh, the state of the israeli mob and when i was looking i found out that uh israel uh, has become one of the world's leading exporters in investment scams (laughs) leading to five to ten billion dollars a year in theft and twenty percent of the revenue of israel's high-tech sector comes from shady or fraudulent industries Uh, I also discovered that between 2008 and 2014, Israel's black market economy uh, soared to more than a quarter of the country's GDP. And these are just a number of of different uh, statistics detailing, you know, the kind of off the books black market economy in Israel. But, yeah, when you look at the you know at the port authority, I just you know I was just thinking, uh you know, if there's a large mafia element going on, then you know that's you're going to want to look at Israel itself too
2: well, one of the big uh the big reasons that Dawson gets so deeply into the Port Authority and its functioning and and who its players are and their affiliations to APAC and goldman sachs and and various other dealings. Is because Donald Trump uh, being a developer in New York City for several decades, building Trump Tower, leveling Bonwit Taylor to, to put up another building, buying up all sorts of hotels, building his casino in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Donald Trump is intimately connected to a lot of these people. He had to know these people. He had to have dealings with the Italian mob for uh, various uh, resources. He had to have contracts and agreements with the Port Authority uh, to do a lot of what he's done. So, and he happens <clears> the, <throat> the 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 elephant in the room
1: is that his son-in-law uh, Jared Kushner, who is married to Ivanka, his father Charles Kushner worked on the Port Authority. He was, uh, you know, he was a board member of yes. the Port Authority for a short time and deeply involved with all of these people, like all the New Jersey politicians and New York politicians and all the big, um, you know, the bankers and the real estate developers like Kushner was up there with he himself being a real estate developer. So we'll get into that, a little bit of that.
0: Well, it's interesting because Charles Kushner was appointed to the Port Authority by McGreevy, a politician that he... Basically paid to get into office, yeah, like one point five million dollars. Due to so many scandals, he wasn't he wasn't able to actually take the the position on the board. I think you know he was actually on the board
1: for several months at least, was he? and then McGreevy um, nominated him to be chairman of the board, oh. and that was when all these scandals came up, and and uh, Kushner had to say had to reject the offer and say, oh no, I can't because well because I'm such a corrupt dude. He didn't say that, but that's really what it was. He had so many conflicts of interest that he just, you know, he couldn't conceivably be on the board while having all of these deals going through and and being so involved in um, what he would essentially be in charge of.
2: So right there, there's a, a very big connection. Trump has effectively, I can't say he arranged a marriage between uh, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, but it's certainly a marriage of convenience to Trump's private uh, business dealings in the sense that he's got this inside boy, uh, the son of uh, Charles Kushner, who is, even though he's he's gone to prison, and we'll get into some of those details uh, a little later, I think, or, or sooner, he is as connected as can be, uh, Jared Kushner is. In real estate in uh, he owns a, a newspaper he owns a magazine in New York he owns the New York Observer uh, I think it's the, um, the Atlantic magazine or Not sure one what the say. Other one is. yeah so he's Jared has aspirations to be a, a mini empire building builder himself and certainly Trump has capitalized on this relationship that uh, Kushner has with his daughter to bring him into the fold So uh, some of the implications for that we'll get into later, but it's important to know that Trump has been working within a a system of white-collar crime. He's been working with the worst elements of real estate and corruption for decades. So he knows how the game is played. You know, it's kind of like you can't really do anything or do very much in, in the Ambitious scale that Trump has wanted to do and has done without getting into bed with a lot of these people mm-hmm. uh, One of them was infamous mob lawyer Roy Cohn Who was the consigliere if you will to the Genovese crime family and Trump and Cohen were very good friends uh, Cohen incidentally was the subject of uh, the Angels in America play which was very popular in, in the in the 90s here in the US Uh, and has a very interesting history himself.
1: And he worked with Joe McCarthy.
2: And he worked with Joe McCarthy during the uh, McCarthy hearings. So there are all kinds of sprawling details here uh, which point to the fact that in order for Trump to be Trump, to do what he's done before his presidency, and even now uh, during his presidency, he's made this kind of, would you say, guys, it's fair to say a a kind of deal with the devil
0: to some degree? I think so because he was playing in a in the game of New Jersey and New York politics, where basically, in order to um, you know become a real estate mogul, in order to become a big player, you have to become you know you have to pay people, you have to grease the wheels, mm-hmm. you, ha- and then,
1: you have to deal with the port you have to is, deal
0: with the mobbed up groups, yeah,
1: which is totally corrupt. You have to deal mm-hmm. with the mob, you have to deal with the the politicians. So, I mean, to one of the points that um, that Dawson makes in the in the movie, well, I'll give an example, a little story. So, in like two thousand two or two thousand three, when there were calls for there to be a nine eleven investigation, there was a New Jersey senator, um, Torricelli, who was outspoken in the need for an independent investigation. And so he spoke out about the need for an independent organi- uh, investigation, and he was very critical of the the idea put forth by the Bush administration for this biased, partial, non-independent investigation. And immediately after that, the the New York Times and the New York Observer started smearing him, basically, coming out with all these skeletons in his closet, all these shady deals he was involved with. And the point Dawson makes is like, well, yeah, of course he was involved in all those things because he was a New Jersey politician. It's like, there aren't any New Jersey politicians that aren't involved in any of these sorts of things. But... The reason that they went after him is probably because he was supporting an independent 9-11 investigation. So it's like, if you're in that scene at all, you're going to have skeletons in your closet because it's unavoidable if that's what you want to do. If you don't want to have any kind of shady associations, then you're not going to get into the real estate business, for instance, or politics, or, you know, it's just, it's, It comes with the territory.
0: You're especially not going to become a real estate mogul in Atlantic City. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) But uh, so back to the subject of the Kushners, since they were kind of... You know, ground zero for the the documentary and the you know the connections between Trump and you know his Zionist ball and chain. Um, so Jared Kushner uh, became CEO of his uh, family's company at the age of 25, a pretty you know ripe young age to take over a multi-million dollar real estate, uh, you know whatever other businesses mm-hmm. that they had going on.
1: Just before you continue, this was after going to Harvard. And the reason he got into Harvard was because his dad basically made another donation, like a 2.5 million donation to Harvard. And coincidentally, uh, Jared and his brother both got in. This was in like 1998, I think. That the that the the, the money changed hands, and um, Charles Kushner, the father, um, he and his wife both got put on like some board, um, some Harvard board too. And the thing is, is that uh, uh, Jared Kushner didn't have the grades. Like he wasn't a good enough student to ordinarily be able to get into Harvard, so this led to um, this guy writing a book. I can't remember his name.
2: Michael and, Goldman.
1: Yeah, something like that. <laughs> and
2: Daniel Goldman. Yeah,
1: he. So he wrote a book several years ago about this phenomenon, not just about Kushner's, but uh, about the Ivy League schools in general and how it too is pay to play. And so that came up again during the presidential campaign. This came up again, and and Golden Goldman. Uh, whatever his name was, he he wrote a couple articles just reminding people about this phenomenon. And of course, with the whole thing going on with Harvard these days, with their admissions policy and the investigations into them, it just it kind of adds another factor to why they are so secretive about their admissions policy. Um, this is of course in in the context of their kind of reverse affirmative action tendencies. They,
0: they don't like Asians. But we'll just leave it there. Leave it there. Um, so yeah, Kushner, he became uh, the CEO of his company at 25 after his father ended up going to prison uh, for making false statements to the FEC, for witness tampering, and for tax evasion, uh, stemming from $6 million in bribes, essentially, that he was uh, issuing to various politicians through his company and through, and allegedly falsely through his family members. So he was would give checks in the name of Jared Kushner his son to you know various politicians like McGreevy or, mm-hmm. and in order to you know expand his quote unquote empire mm-hmm. which he had inherited from his own father
1: Well, and it wasn't just his family members. What he'd do, this is a a thing that developers like this do. Whenever they have a new project, they create a new company, Mm -hmm. like a subsidiary company. So that new company will be created. It's got a new name, you know, new papers and um, various partners listed. And what Kushner would do, he would write checks, not just in his family's name, but in the names of all his partners, whether family or not. And so he'd make huge political contributions. Well, cumulatively huge because coming from these dozens and dozens of corporations, and from people that don't really exist. Well, the people exist, but they weren't aware that they were giving donations. You know, it was Charles's money that was just being sent to politicians in their name and without their knowledge.
2: Well, I would just add that uh, the Charles Kushner, you know, some of the background of of that court case in particular involved a dispute that he had with his older brother Murray, who he was in business with. And Murray, at one point, felt that he was uh, owed some money by the company and was investigating, and there was a big kind of falling out between him and, and Charles Kushner. And uh, so th- there's this big falling out, and originally Charles Kushner's sister takes the side of Charles Kushner in, in this dispute, but then the, the husband of Charles Kushner's sister begins to, well, he, he doesn't do well uh, on the job in he Kushner's was company. For, yeah, he was working for he Charles. He was working for Charles as well, and, uh, and Charles decides that he wants him out, or, or demoted actually. So the sister of Charles Kushner gets very upset by this, and then decides to take sides with the older brother, Murray, uh, in this family dispute. So uh, what does Charles Kushner do? He ends up paying for a high-level escort to seduce and take the husband of his sister uh, into a, a hotel, tape the, the sex, and uh, and, then send, and then Charles Kushner sends the tape of this to his sister. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it, it gives you a great insight into the character of the man that in the interest of, of money and power uh he would he would stoop so low as to do this sort of thing,
0: just a couple things. Well, one thing was uh, his brother had sued him uh, for allegedly misusing family companies funds and paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to uh, high profile figures, especially Netanyahu, because Charles is near the top of Mr. Netanyahu's uh, list of wealthy Americans most likely to contribute to his to his campaign. Mm-hmm. But also, he hired a prostitute to honey trap his brother in law and hurt his sister. And then afterwards, when he was interviewed, uh, I think he was either getting out of prison or it was towards the end of his uh, time in prison, he says, quote, I don't believe God and my parents will ever forgive my brother and sister for (laughs) instigating a criminal investigation and being cheerleaders for the government and putting their brother in jail because of jealousy, (laughs) hatred, and spite.
1: Well, and it wasn't just his brother-in-law and his sister. He also got suspicious of an accountant I think that was working for his company he was convinced that this guy was taking files out at night and giving them to Murray so he tried to get uh he tried to do the same thing with this guy hire a hire a, a prostitute to to sleep with him and get dirt you know get the dirt on him get the videos that he could then use for blackmail but I'm pretty sure it was this one that it didn't work out so well so he had like middlemen that he that he tried to to get the prostitutes originally and the two guys he got to to um, to find the prostitute I think they were um, the O'Toole brothers they were both cops, like I think they were both New York City cops, so he basically paid these guys these two cops to find a prostitute, but that didn't work out they couldn't they either couldn 't find someone or you know it just it didn't no I think yeah, something fell through on that, so he decided to to do it on his own, so he found the prostitute he gave her like thirty eight thousand dollars or something like that and but then this one like she it sounds like she just took the money and ran she didn't actually get the goods on on this this guy so he didn't have the the material to use but it this just shows like the fact that he'd do it twice and like for the same thing so once this came to light then of course there were more charges you know added on to to the rap sheet but the, the part of the way this started um like you said earlier was that uh Murray was getting suspicious that, you know, that he wasn't getting everything that was his, for instance, and that there were some some shady things going on, so he he basically sued for information and that opened up the books to scrutiny. Mm-hmm. So this was the thing, well, it's uncertain whether Murray knew that it would go down the road that it went. He wasn't necessarily trying to to expose all this kind of stuff, but when the books started getting opened and this start this started being um, looked at closely, then all of these shady deals started come to light. So that's when Charles realized, okay, well, I'm you know I'm really in deep doo doo right here. So, so I better start hiring some prostitutes to get some blackmail on these on
2: these people. Well, just a quick, quick comment on this modus operandi. I mean, this is. Uh... You know, this tactic is typically you read about this in books by Viktor Ostrovsky uh, by way of deception. I mean, this is pure, you know, this is Mossad. This is CIA. uh, And the guy isn't an intelligence agency guy. He's just a he's just a a crook. But it's very interesting that, you know, given his political affiliations and given his will to power and his drive to accrue more uh, for himself and his family. Um, or at least his sons, that he would um, gravitate towards this type of thing, th- this tactic to achieve his his ends. Uh, so I, I just thought that was, you know, worth noting here. I mean, uh, we we heard uh, last year about Bob Weinstein hiring Black Cube, uh, a corporation that uh, that helps in delicate situations like this, uh, to kind of. Uh, make friends with Rose McGowan, who is accusing, uh, you know, Weinstein of, of various things. And whatever you think about that situation, uh, there's this whole kind of uh, honeypot infrastructure of leveraging power over people that we've read about in Washington and, and, and Israel and various other places. It's like an industry. It's like a mini industry of blackmail mm-hmm. uh, that exists in the world. And so, I'm sure Black Cube and other companies like it, uh, which are Israeli, by the way, you know, not only try to fix certain situations, but create them. I'm sure that's, that's part of the services they, they are paid to provide for as well. So just an interesting note there.
0: Thought it was interesting that the one who was prosecuting Kushner was Chris Christie, who was later uh, hoping to become Donald Trump's vice president. But since Jared Kushner was in the administration, there were some rumors that Kushner, after watching his father go down in flames because of you know the prosecution from Chris Christie, ended that that dream for Christie, and he had to you know mm-hmm. settle for his time in the. In New York?
1: Well, maybe we can get into just a little bit about that whole situation because Chris Christie was governor of New Jersey from 2010 to 2018. And um, so we already mentioned McGreevy, who was governor from 2002 to 2004. Well, there was a situation, uh, Jared Kushner just ties in tangentially to this, but um, Chris Christie appointed one of the uh, board members to the Port Authority, David Wildstein. Um, and he created a new position for him, so this was a position a position that didn't previously exist on the Port Authority. Um, but Christie made the position for him to basically get him get him in a six six figure salary. And um, Kushner had given um, Wildstein uh, money for one of his projects, so this all kind of came to a head in from September ninth to September thirteenth, two thousand thirteen. And in the so-called Bridgegate scandal. So this was the George Washington Bridge, I believe, and that is managed by the Port Authority. And for these five days, in 2013, two of the lanes of the bridge were shut down on the authority of Wildstein at the Port Authority. And um, with sever- with on the authority of... Well, it was on their authority because they managed it, but it was in basically collusion with... Several of Chris Christie's aides, um, and of course Wildstein was a direct appointee from Chris Christie, and so they shut down these lanes for five days without telling anybody. No one knew what was going on, and it just caught, it just wreaked havoc on the on the region because the, that's a, a high volume, high traffic bridge, mm-hmm. and so it was it, you know not good for the economy, not good for the the people <clears throat> living on the towns and the cities on either side.
2: It was a nightmare actually. Yeah. I remember when that happened. Yeah. Yes. The, the GWB has a, a huge amount of uh, of traffic like you said, Harrison. But anyway, <laughs> con- continue.
1: <laughs> so it was a big snafu. No one knew what was going on. And then um, people, I think it was in, in New York, they didn't know what was going on. So they reopened the bridge and reopened the lanes because it was just like they, no one had told anyone else what was going on. It was just a decision that came from this Wildstein guy. And it turns out that, uh, well, there was a big investigation. Originally, they found that uh, Chris Christie knew nothing about it, that it was just his aides acting on their own for reasons unknown. Um, but there was there was speculation for what the reason may have been at the time. There were a couple hypotheses given, but the one of the most credible was that this was basically revenge against the mayor of Fort Lee because... Um, the this mayor I can't remember his name he did not support Chris Christie's like um, uh, election or you know re-election in in 2013 or something like that and so this was getting back at at this guy for for not supporting Christie and uh, after the investigation several people were indicted and sentenced to time um, so Christie's deputy chief of staff Bridget Ann Kelly um, she wrote. Oh, oh, no, no, this is, this is some b- more background. Um, so his chief of staff wrote to Wildstein in August of 2013, so this is before the bridge shut down, uh, and these am- emails came to light um, in the investigation. She wrote, quote, Time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee. Wildstein then replied, Got it, one minute later. And so in the investigation where um, um, Christie's chief of staff and the Port Authority executive, I believe it was Weinstein, Weinstein, no, it was another guy, um, they were both indicted, and in this time period somewhere, Jared Kushner emailed David Weinstein to tell him what a, quote, badass move mm-hmm. it was. So he really liked the, the fact that Weinstein had screwed over the, the mayor of of uh, Fort Lee by cr- closing down the bridge for, for five days. Um, yeah,
2: well, so that, that's the kind of guy Jared is. But think about the implications here for just one second. Basically, in this, in this political war involving these, these people, you, you have a really detrimental, frustrating effect on the people of New Jersey and New York City who are just trying to go to work and, and, and get places. There's so much about Dawson's documentary and, and these facts that come to light in particular, which point to how uh, these people just don't give a shit about your, your average everyday person and, and what they need to do to uh, exist reasonably. <laughs>
0: They're so absolutely narcissistic, it's nauseating. <laughs> so, um, I was thinking uh, about, uh, Old Jim McGreevy and his secret Israeli lover. I don't think we've talked about <laughs> no. this, this yet. Um, but so we, t- we touched on him. Uh, you know, he was governor of uh, New Jersey from 2002 to 2004, essentially put in uh, power by Kushner. Um, and he met a he was uh, secretly gay. And he met uh, an, an Israeli. Uh, he was—he wasn't a politician, I don't think, but he was a official. He'd been in the IDF, and he had some official position within the Israeli government.
1: Yeah, he'd um, worked in various positions, like you know, in in politics and mm-hmm. in government.
0: His name was Golan uh, Sippel. Basically, they had a tryst and when McGreevy visited Israel and when he came back, he brought Sippel with him and he appointed him as the Homeland Security advisor when he uh, became governor of New Jersey. And it was actually Charles Kushner who sponsored uh, Sippel's work visa to the U.S. and then employed him in one of his companies before he was hired by the governor. So then it seems like You know, through whatever shady uh, connections were going on, whether it was intelligence or it was just uh, Kushner's private initiative, whether it was Mossad, there's just all sorts of honeypot activities going on here. Um, And Sipel ended up threatening to sue McGreevy later on after... Uh, Kushner and McGreevy split, I believe, bec- over, yeah. uh, you know, some ridiculous, narcissistic thing. Well,
1: I think what happened was, well, first of all, to, to get some of the connections straight before we get into the how the Sipel-McGreevy uh, relationship ended, was that, uh, first of all, Charles Kushner was, like we said previously, one of, was uh, McGreevy's biggest fundraiser. So, it donated like $1.5 million to his, uh, his campaign, and... Charles Kushner served briefly on the PA and then it was McGreevy that nominated him to serve as the um, chairman of the board at the PA in like late 2002, I think. So it's Kushner who sponsors the visa for this Israeli guy that McGreevy meets for like 20 minutes in Israel and then decides he wants to bring him back to the States. So he brings him back to the States, gives him these cushy no, no pun intended. Positions, and people are starting to get suspicious. Right? They're they're like, well, you know, something's not right here. Like this is this is kind of weird. So there were there were like rumors, and people thought that maybe they were a thing, and they were weren't sure what this this Israeli national was doing. You know, w- getting such high positions and having so much influence in like McGreevy's office, and so they started looking into it. And I think when these rumors started going about, there were some questions asked, and then uh, Sipel was forced to resign. So for... And I think it was just for that reason that he he was forced to resign and McGreevy wasn't... Maybe, you know, because McGreevy wasn't backing him up, Sapel's lawyer threatened McGreevy, basically saying that Sipel is going to bring sexual harassment charges against McGreevy. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly for what, if it was just um you know bad feelings and so in response to that you know cuz mcgreevy basically okay well you know his cover's blown at this point so he came out literally um, at that time to say he was uh, a gay american like that was his quote and that was a really good move on his part because he didn't get charged with any of the like any of the things that he should have gotten charged with cuz he was he was so corrupt but basically that forced him to resign as well when he admitted the, the relationship and the, some people in the scene, in that scene, thought that Kushner was the man behind getting Sapel to bring down McGreevy.
2: So the big elephant in the room of all of this, aside from uh, McGreevy's big coming out party and, and uh, the fact that he had this affair was that you have this, like you were saying, Corey, this Israeli national, he's not even a a U.S. citizen, he's Israeli, he's brought in to, to head New Jersey's Homeland Security Department. So, I mean, who, you know, this isn't an accidental, arbitrary thing here. It has to be that someone whispered into McGreevy's ear, you know, Sapel would, would be really good in in national in homeland security.
1: Well, it might have been Sapel himself, so, you know, you know, I'd be really good in homeland <laughs> security.
2: Yes, and 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 McGreevy uh McGreevy, he bought it, you know, in the throes of this uh, relationship. I mean, this is in the context, this is only I think um a few years after 9/11. That's a that's a whole larger subject. We're going to get into that a little bit later, I think. It just shows how the, it takes on a, a whole kind of wider geopolitical perspective in a certain sense uh in this one scandal and uh yeah so so i mean it's uh like we were saying before about the honey traps sapel was obviously sent in there they probably had already profiled mcgreevy as a closet homosexual and sapel you know insinuates himself into a prime position from the point of view of you know israel's aims and goals and influence in the u.s to influence policy in new jersey and meanwhile charles kushner is behind the scenes pulling all the strings which is
1: very
0: interesting well as douglas valentine notes in his book the cia as organized crime at a certain level it's very difficult to uh, find the the boundary or there is no boundary really between uh, a lot of this intelligence work and uh, organized and organized crime and the mafia, the sale of drugs, and all of these covert kinds of operations, and that goes back, you know, that has a, a, a long history. But uh, you're talking about 9-11, uh, Elon, and that brings us to another connection to Kushner and McGreevy, who is Lou Eisenberg. Uh, Lou Eisenberg is the chair of the Republican National Committee. He was a former chairman of the Port Authority he was a partner of goldman sachs and uh, he became a partner in 1989 and he was also the one who facilitated the sale of the world trade center towers to another man uh, right before the 9/11 attacks and upon that sale the um,
2: larry silverstein
0: silverstein yeah he i think he doubled the the insurance he i believe he he did something along the lines of doubling the insurance or something that hinted at foreknowledge of some sort of Catastrophic Catastrophic event. event. Catalyzing (laughs) catastrophic event.
2: Only two months before the World Trade Center attack happened. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, yeah, that's. Gets this big insurance uh, bump.
0: Well, and
1: then, well, just a, a couple more details on Lou Eisenberg. He was a member of, he was also a member of the Planning Board of Jewish Appeal and the United Jewish Federation. And. Um, I alluded to, to people like Eisenberg when I was describing the Port Authority at the beginning, at the beginning of the show because uh, Eisenberg's senior advisor was Michael Glasner, who was the southwestern regional political director for APAC. And um, just another little 9-11 anecdote, when Silverstein and I believe his name was Lowey, um, like his partner, well they took control of the World Trade Center on July 24th, 2001. And so, of course, just a couple months before 9-11, and on a, like a, a possibly related note, this, the, Dawson points this out. This was two days before uh, Bernie Kerik visited Israel. Now, I wrote an article about this on SOT several years ago based on another of Dawson's documentaries, uh, Empire Unmasked where he gets into the details of this because Bernie Carrick
2: was what, like a police. He, he was the, I believe he was the commissioner. Yeah. Police in New commissioner. York City during, during the months of, of nine 11 appointed by Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. And so
1: at the end of July, 2011, uh, Carrick makes this trip to Israel. Um, and it just kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, I've got the details in my article. Um, I'll put a link to that too. Um, so Carrick goes to Israel and he, and it, no no one's really sure why he's there but he gives some like some interviews while he's there and um he talks to um, um yeah Itan Wertheimer, who i think i can I don't, I don't know if it was at that time or not but he worked um for the i think it was later on that Wertheimer worked for the Jewish agency i believe it was and this is something that Dawson points out the Jewish agency was the was the organization that sponsored one of the um, five dancing Israelis to come to the states. Um,
2: who are the dancing Israelis? <laughs> dancing Israelis. These, these, us about the, those.
1: these are the guys that were caught on 9/11. Well, it's a big story, but I'll, I'll try to just give the salient details. So, you know how Trump was during this campaign. I think he was talking about the Middle Easterners who were dancing in, in 9/11, and of course, this was a reference to. I think it was Fox News who on 9/11 or shortly after they were running footage of what they alleged to be Palestinians celebrating the collapse of the uh, World Trade Center towers. And so there were videos of these Palestinians in Palestine like dancing and cheering. Turns out that they were, um, it was a real video, but they were celebrating something entirely different. They weren't celebrating the the collapse of the of the towers, of the Twin Towers. It had nothing to do with 9-11. But on 9-11, there were um, Middle Easterners who were, celebrating the collapse of the towers and it took years for all the details to come out because the, the FBI actually did a pretty good investigation into it. What it was is that there was these five guys that were working for a moving company um, well several moving companies but the, the, the one that gets the most um, or that got the most press was urban urban moving systems. and so some of the I believe they were in New Jersey there were yes. there were some people in an apartment complex who basically looked outside and they saw these people that they described as middle eastern looking and they were like standing on top of their moving truck and cheering when the towers came down and um like f- taking pictures of themselves like they were flicking lighters and then getting a picture of themselves flicking a lighter with the with the tw- twin towers burning in the background and giving themselves giving each other high fives and so there was like a bolo put out for, for these people and, and for others. Um, and several of these, uh, of these guys, not just these five, but there, were, there was a whole team of them. But I, I can't remember the number, but it was in the dozens of Israelis that were picked up after 9-11. And you don't hear about it in the news. And so these guys were working for this, this moving company. And they did get caught, so the police arrested them because they found the van that matched the description. And they were held in custody for, I don't know for how long, but it was for a significant amount of time. And I think it was only, um, what was the guy's name? Um, I can't remember. One of the guys in the Bush administration that basically um, got them extradited or you know just deported back to Israel without any charges being placed. But the fbi reports have been declassified they're still censored in certain spots like there are there are names and 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 stuff blacked out but um in that in those documents is the revelation that the jewish agency had had um basically sponsored one of these guys to come over um two of them were like israeli intelligence one of the guys, I think, I think it was the guy that ran Urban Moving Systems. He was on like an FBI watch list as a, a, a known or suspected Mossad spy. And these guys had property um, like all over like New York and New Jersey, and also in Florida, and they where they had their their moving systems, their moving companies stationed, and they're all staffed by Israelis that are like over in the states on temporary visas, and. Uh, Fox News afterwards did did a pretty good report about it. Mm-hmm. I guess you know before they really knew what was going on, and um, it turns out that this was just part of a uh, a much wider operation where there were these Israeli art students, basically a bunch of Israeli like young Israeli people that came over to the states to go door to door selling art. So there were basically How at, nice. at least these two operations. There were Israelis selling art, and what they do is they basically. They'd go to figures that were involved in various kind of high-level government or security positions and then try to sell them art. And the, the FBI, they knew what was going on. They knew this was a, an intelligence-gathering operation. And so when all these guys were rounded up, they knew these were all Israeli spies, or at least the vast majority of them. And some of these dancing Israelis were known Israeli spies. And they just got deported, and no one asked the question very well, actually, I think two people asked the question two journalists, one writing for I think counterpunch, and the other um, which was more mainstream, writing for um, some other um, kind of leftist paper, but a pretty big one and but other than that, there was nothing in the mainstream media asking who these guys were, um, how they kind of how they had foreknowledge because It was evident from the FBI investigations that they did have foreknowledge, like before each of the towers fell, like two minutes before the first tower fell and two minutes before the second tower fell, these guys, they all placed cell phone calls to other people as if like warning, like it's about to happen. Someone either heard them say or one of them said in the interviews, I can't remember which, they said that they knew or they were telling people before the second tower came, okay, the second tower is about to fall. And so they were basically getting ready to to take their shots of it to to film it coming down. And so no one was asking who these people were, how they knew about it, and why they were celebrating.
2: Well, I think it was uh, the State Department or or one of these other big agencies, along with the Bush administration, that kind of swooped in. Uh, like you said, Harrison, the, they were um, they were uh, arrested and and apprehended for many months, and then deported. But the story was kind of squelched. And if I remember correctly, the, the Fox News, it was a kind of a series of two or four episodes that came out at the time. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was also kind of put down. Yeah, they took it off their website at some point. Yes. So uh, you had that happening. And just to get back to Sapel, this guy, uh, this, this Israeli who had the affair with McGreevy, uh, you know, now it, it, it makes kind of perfect sense as to why. You know if he was sent in there, the reason why, and that would be to do some some more kind of uh spin doctoring and and damage control of, of this story so it certainly makes sense that they would have Sapel go in there and try and do some uh, some damage control after this the story had broke at least in a limited way and and threatened to really kind of blow the lid t- to some extent uh, on israel's uh, mm-hmm. participation in 9-11, which again is a, is a very big topic and, and probably outside the bounds of, of what we're discussing today, but points to the kind of have this centralization of power in, in New York and New Jersey really speaks to geopolitical power as well, not, not just buying buildings and, and selling concrete and, and acquiring uh, large amounts of money in various ways. And just to get back to your point a little earlier about uh, Bernard Carrick, the former commissioner of uh, the New York uh, Police Department, again, j- just an insight into the, uh, the characters of, of a lot of these players. Carrick, the, you know, the, the highest recognized, one of the highest recognized officials in, in New York uh, justice and policing, was later sent to prison. Uh, yeah. For for racketeering and spent some years in prison, mm-hmm. so I mean he came out with this book about how he he you know, he was on Oprah Winfrey and and he was just kind of standing, he was uh, Giuliani's right hand man during nine eleven, and the guy's a thug, uh, he's an absolute thug mm-hmm. who 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 was sent to prison only a few years later. You know. uh, and then and then at some point, somebody wanted to make him head of Homeland Security, even after prison, which was a total joke. I think it was Bush. So, I mean, it, it, it would be comical if it wasn't so ridiculous and so horrible that these people wield so much power in, in the world today. So
1: Bernie was, like, as you mentioned, so he was police commissioner during 9-11, and he was the guy... Well, he's the the last known or the first known person to have the the passport of the, one of the hijackers that was found on the the streets of New York. So the story is that some citizen found the passport and turned it in, but that person has never been revealed and the only person that as far back as you can trace the the news about that passport, it's Bernie Carrick. Mm. So somehow Bernie got that passport, but no one knows who gave it to Bernie.
2: Okay. <laughs> So uh, to, Maybe he to, got
1: it on a trip to Israel two months before 9-11.
2: And in case it's not absolutely clear, uh, the story of, of Bernie Carrick finding one of the passports of one of the uh, alleged terrorists of, of 9-11 amidst the rubble where, where so much was vaporized is such a tall fairy tale so as to beggar belief. I mean, it, it's just so absurd, and yet, you know, it was sold to... Americans and a lot of people bought it. And correct
0: me if I'm wrong, but the port authority was responsible for getting all of that rubble uh, removing it from the scene right. of the crime before it could be investigated. Well, is and, that correct?
1: And yeah, I believe, so. well, I believe so, I don't know for sure, but what they were responsible for was to, was to determine what would become of the World Trade Center real estate locations. So they were then responsible for any further development, and they were responsible for basically determining where all those businesses would go. So again, the Kushner's figure in because uh, Charles Kushner just so happened to have like he had a ton of business real estate just across you know the pond in New Jersey. So the, one of the first companies to move from the World Trade Center to one of Kushner's complexes was Goldman Sachs. And so all those businesses that basically had to find new office space, um, well, Kushner just happened to have mm-hmm. a, a whole bunch of free space available, so he, you know, he made off like a bandit um, after nine eleven too, um, just providing office space for all those businesses that uh, you know no longer had a place to go.
2: Another tie in to nine eleven, which Dawson makes very interestingly clear, is it was either the New York Observer or his or the Kushner magazine. It was the video. Observer. It was the Observer. Yep that was the first publication in the United States to receive the infamous anthrax letters that, that set off the big scare in Washington, D.C., just as the Patriot Act, I believe, was, uh, was being rushed through by Dick Cheney and pushed through, even though you had a lot of politicians saying, wait a minute, this has to be read before it can be passed. So, that you know, there would seem to be I mean, is that a coincidence?
0: Right. Those politicians then had anthrax mailed to them. Right. Is that a coincidence? No. Somebody yeah. was clearly yeah. There yeah. was <laughs> there was clearly an attempt to uh, to intimidate. That's what it suggests.
1: Well, and we we interviewed. I can't remember when if it was like two years ago. We interviewed Graham McQueen about the anthrax attacks because he had he wrote a great short little book that just went in into the the whole anthrax uh, attack story from beginning to end, um, all the details. And the thing about that whole scenario was it's very interesting the way it turned out because those initial reports, you know, published by the New York Observer, and then after them, several others, they were all about how it was, this these were tied to 9-11. It was the same people involved. It was these Muslim terrorists because the, the notes said, you know, death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. And then what did we learn as this went by? Well, Al Qaeda got taken out of the equation entirely. Oh, it was domestically sourced. Oh, oh, the the anthrax was weapons grade, produced in a U.S. facility. Oh, well, how does that make sense? Oh, and they, so they ended up just um, blaming this guy that worked at like what Fort Detrick or something. Mm-hmm. And well, basically that that was a, a whole load of BS too. But if you if but you it, it, yeah it, if you look who benefits mm-hmm. if you look who was yeah. be, who was behind um, like all the connections in there well just go back to our our show with Graham Mcqueen to to get all the details with that it, and just the fact that it was the New York observer and that there was that Kushner was involved in some way and that when you, then when you look in the Kushner connection and all the connections Kushner had it's very shady to That's, say the least
0: but just another interesting detail uh, about the anthrax uh, Uh, scare and the investigation, specifically about the FBI investigation, uh, who was responsible for that? Who railroaded an innocent man but Robert Mueller? (laughs) And and who makes his appearance today to railroad another innocent man? Robert Mueller. You can always call on him to abort justice. But... um, just one interesting thing about uh, just coming back to Jared Kushner. Uh, so we discussed the fact he became CEO um, in his mid twenties of his family's company after his father went to prison, and it seems like at that point he started to, you know, at that point he was being initiated or tested or hazed or or however into this, you know, this corrupt criminal uh, world that his father uh, lived in. And he bought The Observer, and then he bought, um, he bought a couple other papers. And then he started dating Ivanka in, I believe it was either 2007 or 2008. But uh, because of his media business, he became a, 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 an affiliate of Rupert Murdoch. And Rupert Murdoch uh, t- basically took him under his wing and is actually the one, his, uh, Murdoch's wife allegedly, is the one who convinced Ivanka to to marry him because they had broke Mm. up for a while. They had broke up to go their separate, they had, you know, religious differences is what they said is the reason for their breakup. But then, you know, they met on a yacht under the the guise of the Murdochs and they were, and Ivanka said that yes, she would would, uh, adopt the Jewish religion and, then they ended up getting married so that was the that was the whole um that's the public relations version i guess of their of their relationship because you know they're high class they're super rich you're never going to find out you know they're not going to air their dirty laundry or what you know is going on behind closed doors but that was when you know allegedly trump had cemented the relationship um to this whole zionist ball and
2: chain well it's interesting because trump has made some fascinating in the context of all this just fascinating comments on uh, on the 9-11 in the World Trade Center in particular you know when when the buildings came down actually I don't know when this interview took place but he he actually said that the World Trade Center was an incredibly well-built and strong building and that there's no way uh, the planes could have been solely responsible for their destruction so um, you know, he pointed to the fact that the the much of the steel structure of the World Trade Center was external, uh was around its frame. And uh, you can go on YouTube, you can you can hear this. And uh and so he you know, he doesn't it's like he's questioning the nine eleven nine eleven narrative without questioning it. He's just affirming what he knows as a as a builder, as a developer. Uh so that's very interesting. He was also on uh a morning news program on MSNBC he was on morning Joe and uh, this was a couple of years ago probably about 2015 I think and so basically he says uh, right now you have things going on you have so-called people that you think are on our side they're not reporting it they're not talking about it and in some cases they're involved with it I mean I'll give you an example some of our so-called allies that we work with and that we protect militarily, they are sending massive amounts of money to ISIS and to Al Qaeda and to others. So Joe asks, so who are you talking about there? Donald says, you know who it is. Why do I have to bring it up for, you know who it is? Because you're running for president. Are you talking about the Saudis, Joe asks? And uh, Trump says, Joe, hey Joe, other countries are giving massive amounts of money People from other countries are giving massive amounts of money. So Joe asks, so are you saying the Saudis are doing this? Donald Trump says, of course they're doing it. Everybody knows that. Joe, any other countries? There are, but I'm not going to say it because I have a lot of relationships with people. (laughs) But there are, and you know that, and everybody knows that, and nobody says it, nobody talks about it. So, publicly, before he becomes president... Trump basically lays it out. I think anybody with two neurons firing, I think, would be able to figure out that he's talking about Israel. I mean, he's got a lot of relationships. Bam! That's that's the you know that's probably the uh, the kind of uh, clue you know okay. that would that would indicate this. So um, he knows he knows what's going on, and he's he's not happy about it. I don't think, but. He is a, what's the term, a real politic politician. He's dealing with what he has uh, and what exists and what's real. And I think that to a large extent informs you know, his, his approach to things, even if he's crude and he pisses off a lot of people and he's going against the grain in so many ways. He knows what reality is and he's, he's, not, he's trying to work with it and he's trying to make the best of it at the same time. And if we get a little bit into the situation as it's unfolding with his uh, proposed Middle East peace plan between Israel and Palestine, I think there are a couple of things about it. Uh, Derry Masson comments on it. Basically, what Trump seeks to do is have Jordan take part of the West Bank and and form a kind of a, a contiguous um, Palestinian land. Uh, Egypt is... is to work with Gaza and the Palestinians, or to forget about any kind of uh, capital homeland in, in Jerusalem uh, now whatever you think about the uh, the plan itself and, and that 's just a short bit of it maybe we 'll link an article that we have by Thierry Messon to the uh, to the show notes but whatever you think about it, uh, Messon makes a very interesting point here which is that Trump is just trying to relieve the suffering of the Palestinians. Even if he's pissing them off at the same time, he knows that the Israelis will never uh, give in to any kind of comprehensive, fair peace plan that would give any kind of justice. So, you know, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe, maybe Trump is, you know, a Zionist at heart, but I think a good argument could be made to suggest that the reason he's had Kushner traips around the Middle East all this time is because it, it puts a very good face on Trump's being aligned with Israel and being on, quote unquote, Israel's side. So I don't know if you guys have any thoughts or comments on, on that, but it, it is certainly interesting to, to watch and to see what he is trying to do
1: yeah the only thing I'd have to say is that it'll be interesting to see what actually happens um, because Trump's kind of an enigma you know you can never really know <laughs> what's going on until it actually happens. so we'll just have to wait and see on that. but um I just wanted to make a couple a couple general points and then get into one specific example. Um, the general point being that. First of all, we we just covered basically the first half of Dawson's little documentary. It's only an hour long, but it's kind of jam-packed with information. So, uh, if you're interested, I I recommend checking it out because there's a lot of interesting things in there, and maybe our our conversation will give the background uh, for it. So it's not uh, too dense when you watch it for the first time. But one of the takeaway messages from it is that that I took at least was just how corrupt. Um, New York and New Jersey politicians are, it seems like if you just read through the news, no matter who you who you find, whether it's politicians or real estate, you'll find people that go to jail that are under indictment for conspiracy, fraud, um, you know, campaign, breaking campaign finance laws. It's just endemic in the whole culture there. And there are numerous examples we didn't even get to, but um, Dawson kind of peppers them throughout the throughout his little documentary. And it's just kind of <laughs> remarkable to, to see how much, um, just how corrupt they are and how many examples there are, like how many of these people have gone to pri- actually gone to prison um, and gotten caught for it. And that this just brings me to the specific example. I want to read um, this article. This article is, is just briefly mentioned in Dawson's documentary. It's just brought up as a screenshot, basically. He doesn't talk about it, but it's in the context of, of this corruption. So this is an article from the Washington Post um, published in July 2009. The headline is Rabbis, New Jersey Politicians Among 44 Arrested in Corruption Probe July 23rd A two-year federal probe into a money-laundering operation taking place between the New York area and Israel ballooned into one of the largest one of the biggest bribery and corruption sweeps in New Jersey history netting three northern New Jersey mayors two members of the New Jersey legislature, a raft of local officials, five rabbis, and a Brooklyn man accused of trafficking in human kidneys, U.S. prosecutors said today. FBI agents arrested 44 people in a series of morning raids, creating a dramatic scene of politicians and rabbis in traditional outfits, handcuffed and being marched into the federal building in Newark, and then boarded onto a bus for the drive to the federal courthouse. Um, Among those were... Among those... Arrested were legislators L. Harvey Smith, Daniel M. Van Pelt, Hoboken Mayor Peter Camarano, Secaucus Mayor Dennis Elwell, Ridgefield Mayor Anthony Suarez, as well as the Deputy Mayor and Council President of Jersey City. The arrested rabbis, the arrested rabbis included Saul Kassin, the Chief Rabbi of the tight-knit Syrian Jewish community in the in the United States, and the Chief Rabbis of synagogues in Brooklyn and Deal, New Jersey. A Brooklyn man... Levi Itzhak Rosenbaum, known in his circles as the kidney salesman, was also arrested as part of the sweep and charged with enticing vulnerable people in Israel to sell one of their kidneys for $10,000, then charging waiting transplant patients in this country up to $160,000. He admitted brokering kidney sales for a decade, federal prosecutors said in the complaint. It seems that everyone wanted a piece of the action, said acting U.S. attorney Ralph J. Mara Jr. The corruption was widespread and pervasive. He said the politicians in New Jersey existed in an ethics-free zone. The huge operation was based on a single confidential informant who was able to help the FBI obtain hundreds of hours of video and audio recordings. The recordings include Hoboken's new mayor, Camarano, who turned 32 on Wednesday, allegedly bragging in a diner about how he was going to win last month's election even if he were indicted because he had locked down the votes of Hispanics, Italians, and senior citizens. A former city councilman, Camerano, is charged with taking $25,000 in bribes. According to federal prosecutors, Thursday's sweep was an outgrowth of a long-running undercover corruption probe known as operation, B- operation Bid Rig, which has already set a raft of other local New Jersey politicians to jail. According to a release describing the operation, an FBI informant in 2007 began helping agents uncover a money-laundering la- money operation between New Jersey, New York, and Israel. According to the complaint, the rabbis used registered charities linked to their synagogues to launder money for, from illegal goods, such as counterfeit handbags. The person wishing to wash illicit proceeds would write a check to the charity, then receive cash, minus a handling fee of 5 to 10 percent kept by the rabbis. The money laundering probe mushroomed into investigation into public corruption and bribery when the same FBI informant was introduced to a New Jersey. Or to a Jersey City building inspector, John Guarini, who allegedly took a total of $40,000 in bribes and introduced the informant to another Jersey City official, Maher A. Khalil, deputy director of Jersey City's Department of Health and Human Services. The informant pretended to be a developer interested in building high-rises, but who needed expedited permits and approvals. The complaint says Khalil made the introductions to people he called players in restaurants around New Jersey and the informant would then pass envelopes stuffed with cash in the parking lot afterwards the amounts were usually in the range of $10,000 to $15,000 going to housing inspectors, planning officials, health department workers and politicians prosecutors said much of the money was being solicited for the closely contested election campaigns for city council and mayor for city council and mayor earlier this year in Hoboken and Jersey City the same informant also posed as a businessman with a female FBI agent posing as his secretary to convince Rosenbaum that they needed to find a kidney for the woman's critically ill uncle. According to the prosecutors, Rosenbaum replied that he was a matchmaker and had been in the business of selling kidneys for 10 years.
2: Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. <laughs>
1: so this is kind of just run-of-the-mill Jersey stuff going on here.
2: <laughs> Jersey is a mafia state. <laughs> Well, Israel is a well-known organ trafficker and, mm-hmm. and a human trafficker. So I, I guess it's no surprise, even though the article didn't make mention of connections. Well, it did make mention of, of some connections to Israel there, I think. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, wow, it's, it's, it's so pervasive. I mean, everywhere you look, it, it's as though virtually most of what gets done is influenced by... Crime uh, and really, really bad crime. So, um, well, bad in
1: both senses of the word. Bad as in like evil, and bad as in just stupid as well. Reckless. Because you, yeah, you look at these people and the things they get up to, and like they're just not very smart. You know, they're incompetent. If there's one, like they're competent at just being like low-level criminals, like Charles Kushner. He's really good at being a really dumb criminal, and that's about all that he's good at. And one of the points Dawson makes is that, you know, we got to stop thinking of these people as like competent businessmen. They really are just lowbrow criminals that have managed to find a great way of making a lot of money just by being stupid and corrupt. Because what they do is they bribe the government official, they, the government then gives them contracts, gives them a lot of money. Then they can use that money to then bribe more government officials and to send a lot of the money back to Israel and, or through APAC. And it's just this circle of money exchange and the the jobs they don't aren't even very, aren't even good. Like, so all these government contracts, like going back, this goes back generations, really. And um, uh, Dawson gets into an example going back to, I think it was like the Crown family, where after um, after Kennedy was assassinated, he, he'd basically set up this deal to create like some kind of, um, like, jet for the air force or something and boeing was supposed to get the contract they were they were the ones that uh that were would have done the better job but then but then johnson came in and he gave the contract to the crown fam families like general um general mechanics or something like that um some other company it's just like the f-35 today right where you have these giant corporations like lockheed that get giant contracts from the government like no-bid contracts and then They don't have any incentive to actually do a good job they're just in it for the money and they know they can get the contracts so they get way too much money to do a really poor job Mm -hmm. and this is just a repeating pattern and the only reason they get the contracts is because they've bribed the politicians in order to get them and it's it just goes on and on and on because this money just keeps changing hands without any actual like real good work being done and in this specific case what it is, it, like Dawson points out, is that it is um, a lot of these people are like tied to APAC. So, so they they bribe the government to get money from the government from like the U.S. taxpayers to then bribe more officials and to uh, or to put into the coffers of APAC, which then influences U.S. foreign policy because APAC has you know agents within all of these. Um, like all the foreign policy making institutions in the United States and at all levels of government and
2: hundreds of lobbyists.
1: Yeah. Hundreds of thousands. <laughs> and that, and and of course there's the ties with, with organized crime. So it's just this network of people paying each other and getting nothing done. And the things they are getting done have no benefit to the U S whatsoever. Like, so that's, that's the way it, like, <laughs> that's politics
0: that's in politics. America.
2: well, So maybe we can just bring this back around to um, how all of this connects to Trump in particular. The title of our show today, Trump's Zionist Ball and Chain, and how it it ties him down in a way. Because in in one sense, it's been his vehicle. It's been the way he's been able to do business for decades. Uh, It's working within the system. And on the other, there's this impetus on his part, uh, whether you like his methods or not, to make america great again to have it be a functioning country with a good economy and jobs for people uh with a foreign policy that that's against intervention i mean he's he's spoken out uh, when he was debating hillary clinton he he said you don't even know who you're supporting in syria Uh, he's come out and said this so you know on, on one level he he really you know you can see that he's really trying However uphill a battle it is and however systemic the problems are, th- there is an attempt to to do America better. And on the other, he is, you know, he has to make a big show of being supportive of Israel. Uh, his donors, uh, Sheldon Adelstein. Uh, Adelson. Adelson, thank you, you know gave him eighty or ninety million dollars to help him with his campaign when when um at a time when Hillary Clinton had maybe five times as much in her war uh war chest for for running the running the presidential campaign. So he's you know he's beholden to these powers that he knows have something over him in the sense of there being this favor bank. You know, you you do for me, I do for you. But inherent in this in this relationship, in this deal with the devil, it seems, is that he'll never be allowed to, to really fully realize any of these ambitions he has for the U.S., uh, if, if they are sincere. And I think they are. So that, to me, is the, the, the Zionist ball and chain. You know, Israel wanted Assad out. Uh, they were supportive of, of, you know, insurgents and jihadis in, in Syria. They were supportive of Al-Qaeda. They were providing uh, material support and, and health services. The U.S., the CIA was, was and probably still is to some great extent, uh, supporting the jihadis against Assad. And, and Trump's got to Trump's battle this. He's got a very delicate balancing act to perform in front of the world, in front of Israel, in front of all the people who were, who were against his uh, wanting detente with Russia. Uh, all the things that, that Israel is vehemently, pathologically, you know, fighting against on some level. So, uh, I don't know. Zionist bowl and chain, guys.
1: Well, yeah. I, I, think that, uh, I think that what it really comes down to is that Trump really doesn't care, like one way or the other. He just wants to look at, the, at his checkbook and see, uh, uh, you know, not see red. You know, he wants to see a, a positive balance for the U.S. So, I don't think Trump really cares one way or the other like what Israel does or what what they want unless it is against um, like American interests or his interests. So... I think he'd be perfectly, he's perfectly fine to just, uh, you know, let Palestinians rot one way or the other, but if something comes to the point where there's a policy or a practice that goes against, like, his vision for what, how he wants to be president and what he wants to be, wants to do as as president, then in that case, I can see him doing, like, a, a JFK or an RFK, not necessarily out of any, like, deep moral fiber, but just simply because of the bottom line, he'll just be like, well, no, you know, we don't want to do that, so I don't think he'd have any problem stabbing ex-allies in the back when it came down to it, but I don't really see him as being a kind of like visionary leader with these high aspirations, like high moral aspirations for what he wants to do in the world. It's like, no, that doesn't work. I don't want to do that. Oh, it looks like that works. Let's do that. Those people are doing that. I don't care. You know, how does it affect me? Oh, that it's affecting me that way. Okay, let's do something about it. I think I see him more as a really practical kind of businessman that's... Mm-hmm. that. You know when it comes down to it they don't really care um about the issues themselves as opposed to how what what the effect is you know is that practical does that work yes or no let's you know let's work with that
0: right and in the process that's that's why he's upsetting the world order because it's all based on america being in the red you have you know america pays uh, you just pays countries to in order to keep them in its in its orbit. You know, like the Middle East, all the foreign aid that we give to different countries, we give to foreign leaders, we give to um, Middle Eastern allies to play nice with Israel. We pay Israel billions of dollars. You know, we're that's that's just part of the the bottom line of American empires that we pay. Um, we we. That's the corruption inherent in in the American empires. We're constantly paying all of these people, and it's a waste. <laughs> it's obviously a waste. It's not a it's a good not a good way to to run a business. And so when Trump comes in, like you said, he's probably not morally you know <laughs> all revved up he, he in order to he save the, the world.
1: Himself, he doesn't cry himself to sleep. Or, no, no. Or,
0: you know. Children dying in other countries. No, he's just like, why the heck are we paying for NATO's budget, and why the heck are we paying the Taliban? You know, why are we paying uh, Jordan and you know all of these other countries? Um, all of this money, what are, what is really in it for us, for America?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, when you think about the U.S. support for uh, the Saudi war on, on Yemen in particular, and the, the kind of horror show that we're seeing unfold there right now. Uh, yeah, it's like you know what? What the hell is Trump doing there? Uh, why is he in support of, of this sort of thing? It, it's pretty horrible. So you know, he—I don't know if he sees something in it for the U.S. in terms of because uh, that's what the Saudis want, right? Mm-hmm. So we're friends of the Saudis. We need mm-hmm. the Saudis. We we need the 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 petrodollar to stay the petrodollar, and, and they're pretty much one of the only parties in the world that that's on board with that idea, maybe you know things are changing very quickly so yeah I, I mean i could i could see how you know less an idealist than an utter p- pragmatist mm-hmm. uh trump is working within a system that is so far gone e- even if he's not a a good guy necessarily or or a kennedy or someone with a vision an idealistic vision he is an utter pragmatist and um I think he, he's coming and he said, "Wow, this situation in the U.S. is so freaking bad. Uh, I mean, it's so bad that even you know, heck, I, I can I can do a better job. Uh, you know, I, I'd want to see I'd want to see at a minimum." I could do a great job. I could do an awesome job. <laughs> I could do the best job. It can be things can be huge. So yeah, the, there is that.
0: No, I just think that documentary was an excellent kind of window into how uh, the mafia and intelligence and just corruption and greed and uh, all combines together to create this kind of a, a perfect storm that disrupts people's lives and, and leads to inefficient um, government, inefficient business. And, you know, in the end, you end up with President Trump. <laughs> You've got Donald Trump having to come in to fix things up. But, um, you know, it, it just gives an idea of just how uh, deep the swamp is, just how deep it is, and all of the creatures, all the different critters that... That, that live in it, you know, like the Kushners, Charles Kushner, Jared Kushner, you know, the, all the, the mafia families uh, that ran all the different organizations that Trump had to go through to build his towers and to, you know, build the casinos, all, you know, just all of the mafia connections in casinos and the drug trade and, and the connections with, you know, our foreign policy, the wars in Afghanistan and the, you know, the opium production, and it all just, it, it's all just this mass uh, tangled web of just however many little gross spiders <laughs> were spinning all those webs. And, it's, and this is just one window into it the, and just how nasty it is. And I think that it's definitely apropos that it's in uh, New Jersey and New York um, and we get to see you know what was going on around the time of 9-11 and all the different players that were involved in that you know tragedy and catastrophe for America and what happens when you let this kind of a thing just run wild for so long. Well, we see what happens now um, you get nine eleven um, you get what these you know these career uh, criminal politicians and you know it's just you I don't want to say you know it's a a very hopeful topic to discuss but I think that you know it's it's very um, it's very informative and in how evil kind of spreads and how it works you know just through criminal negligence a lot of the time just. Narcissism, negligence, nepotism, all of it just combined. That's, it was a yeah, definitely a good documentary. Anyways, I guess uh, that'll be the end of the show for today. We thank everybody for joining us this afternoon. We hope you have a great uh, Saturday. Thank you, and stay tuned next week for The Truth Perspective on Saturday at noon.
1: All right. See you, everyone. Take Bye. care.
2: Thanks for listening.